This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are moving on to our next segment, where we will have Rick Luffglass, the executive director of the Lori M. Tisch Illumination Fund, which strives to increase access and opportunity for all New Yorkers and build healthy, vibrant communities. Rick, welcome to Dollars and Change. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to, to join you today. We are glad to have you. And we also have Amy, who is Amy... Holmes, sorry, couldn't find your last name, Amy, but we have Amy Holmes, executive director. Nope. She, gosh, I am just. <laughs> Amy, you got a promotion. Amy, you were you just are director. Now the executive Nick made director. you executive director. <laughs> but you are a director. Exciting at day Rockefeller. for Amy. <laughs> director at Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, and you direct strategic planning and program development for families, donor collaboratives, and private foundations. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So sorry to mess that up, but. It's okay. We are glad to have you. So, Rick, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit more about the foundation. Sure, sure, sure. I came to the foundation about eight years ago after a number of years at the uh, Pfizer Pharmaceutical Company and the Pfizer Foundation, which is the charitable arm. And a lot of my work there had to deal with issues of health disparities and access to medicines for low income low-income, uninsured patients. Um, I met Lori uh, when I was really thinking about a transition to foundations and was very much swept by both her personal values and her interest in, in you know, what what we term access and opportunity, which is really, you know, an issue of reconciling disparity is whether it's across the arts, whether it's across access to healthy food, economic opportunity, um, and very much embedded in public-private partnerships. So that, that got me here, um, and a lot of our work uh, now hones in on those issues of disparities across neighborhoods. And so, Amy, let's go to you and tell us a little bit about the type of work that Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors does. Sure. So Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors is a social enterprise that uh, our mission is to help donors create thoughtful, effective philanthropy throughout the world. So the kinds of donors that we work with could be high net worth individuals. It could be families and family foundations. Um, It could be more institutional foundations that have their own professional staff, like the Lori Tisch Illumination Fund uh, would be an example of that. We work with also a lot of corporate giving departments, and we help all those different types of donors to think about issues of strategy and the kinds of uh, philanthropic programs that they want to create. And we also help a lot of donors implement those programs and, and serve as their program staff. Excellent. I think that's a very fascinating role, as I mentioned at the opening of our show, to implement and evaluate programs. We so often are talking to folks who are in the thick of executing their programs, but you get a chance to have that retrospective look on how they went. So let's jump into the specific example that brought you together. Rick, can you talk a little bit about the project that Amy would later assess? Sure, sure. So we got to know Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors about 10 years ago when we started our first project in Healthy Food Access, which was called the New York City Green Cards Initiative. Um, 
And we did a lot of strategizing with Rockefeller, um, not the implementation, but really understanding the landscape of what other funders were doing. Um, when we were wrapping up about that 10 years of work, we reconnected with Rockefeller and said, okay, how'd we do? <laughs> and uh, really looked uh, with them at what are some of the metrics of success, what are the analytics um, retrospectively, um, that, uh, you know, we saw accomplishments. So they did, uh, they interviewed many of the grantees and leaders in the field really to understand what, um, you know, what ultimately what the impact is and what lessons could be drawn for other philanthropists, be it foundations or individuals, the kinds of clients that uh, Rockefeller uh, Philanthropy Advisors works with um, and tries to bring best practices to. And our last guest, actually, we were talking about water, healthy water, and, and also sanitation. But the initiative that you all were looking at here was around healthy food. Green cart. Yeah. So, Rick, what is, you know, the Healthy Food and Community Change Initiative? Sure. So the Healthy Food and Community Change Initiative, which grew out of uh, what you refer to as the Green Carts Initiative, which was a really interesting partnership with New York City and the Bloomberg administration to use street vending as a means to increase access to healthy produce in low-income communities, which otherwise were you know, known as, as food deserts. You've probably heard, heard the term. Um, and those communities where there are very high rates of obesity, diabetes, um, heart disease, and very low, unfortunately, very low um, life expectancies. So in the course of doing that work with Green Carts, which was really a program to increase access, you know, we, we knew that access was necessary but not sufficient, that a, a, a street cart on the corner is not going to solve all of the ills of a community besieged by so many challenges. And so we developed healthy food and community change to go deeper, to look towards other forms of community engagement, other bringing other players uh, to the table, and really trying to expand the field and uh, uh, create more of, let's say, a of move, movement among the sectors in New York City. Amy, was he successful? I would say yes. Um, so it's been a pleasure to look back at this initiative along with Rick and his team to see what some of the findings were, what some of the long-term impacts were, and really also extract what some of the things um, other funders, other nonprofits, other businesses might be able to learn from this initiative and you know, execute or even replicate here in New York City or in other cities, wherever those leaders may be. So one of the things that I find always interesting when we work with nonprofits, social innovators, social entrepreneurs, is this balance between thinking through, you know, hey, innovative ideas. And let's take the green cart sort of project where, you know, it's like, all right, we've got food trucks out there, food vendors. Uh, could we put, you know, fresh vegetables out yep. there? Is there an evidence base that drives that? Maybe not. It, we're sort of innovating, we're experimenting and seeing what it work, how it works. Um, when it comes to this new program, Rick, how did you all balance sort of what the program would look like and what we sort of know, let's say, for, you know, we're, we're an academic institution, yeah. what the academic evidence might show would move the needle? Sure. There's actually years of research on healthy food access and to what extent or it does or doesn't influence um, 
consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables, whether it increases health factors. And I think one of the key lessons as we looked at the research and one of, for example, a wonderful organization in Philadelphia has really pioneered this work called the Food Trust. Um, you know, we saw again, as I mentioned, you know, access is wonderful, but you're not going to get to the kinds of changes you talked about. So some of the research shows, you know, a, a supermarket alone is not going to fix things. But if you have um, cooking demonstrations and you have uh, different kinds of activities at the site and you're laddering it with nutrition education and you're involving in the community, we saw as that compounding effect or sort of laddering that really did start to move the needle. And so I think the evidence really comes from looking not at an isolated solution, solution, but that sort of multifaceted strategy. And we see that a lot in lots of fields. You can't isolate, you know, health conditions from issues of poverty, from issues of unemployment. Um, these are not issues that can be dealt in silos. So, you know, we work with a lot of experts to understand the evidence base. And so, Amy, you know, it sounds like there's potentially a nice foundation to build on when you're trying to assess the efficacy of such a program. And yet, as Rick just mentioned, there are different factors that could also play in some of these outcomes. So how did you think about evaluating such a program and, you know, narrowing down what drove success versus what, versus what might not have? Mm -hmm. So we looked at, you know, there were a great uh, variety of types of organizations that were supported through initiatives, including community-based um, social service organizations, community development corporations or CDCs, colleges and universities. Uh, there were public-private partnerships where uh, the Illumination Fund partnered with New York City public agencies to run initiatives at, at, at housing develop, public housing developments, for example, uh, hospital networks. So a great many different types of interventions were included in this initiative. So we looked at a different sets of factors for each type of grant. But some of the things that we think really drove the initiative's success is empowering residents of a neighborhood to start to identify the things that they needed as a community to make their food environment healthier and really to give them opportunities to take leadership roles, to volunteer at new farmers markets that were springing up in their neighborhood, to start working at some of the urban farms that were happening at their public housing development, to um, participate in multi-generational cooking classes and kind of, you know, eating and cooking together events and really take ownership of the food environment in the places where they live. And that was, I think, a really key factor to success. And, you know, we also just talked with the leadership of a lot of the organizations that were supported by the fund over year, over the course of years and asked them, what are the lasting impacts that you continue to see in your own institution and in the communities that they serve? And, you know, people talked about residents making, being more empowered to make healthy choices, having a greater variety of foods available to them. Um, being able to develop their own careers or help their children launch successful careers in healthy food uh, entrepreneurship opportunities that were available in their neighborhood. So those are the kinds of lasting impacts that we looked for. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, and we're speaking with Amy Holmes, Director of Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, and Rick Luffglass, Executive Director of the Laurie M. Tisch Illumination Fund. I have a question for both of you. We'll start with Amy to kind of keep you on a roll with your response here about impact measurement. 
When we talk about healthy food initiatives, as is the case with so many other sort of social impact dimensions, it's very hard to isolate, as Nick suggested earlier, cause and effect. So the intergenerational cooking classes are happening, but also at the same time, school year's ending for the kids in that community. And so their nutrition takes a shift from cafeteria dining to at home, and that has its implications. How do you measure the impact of these programs and know what specifically these programs are responsible for when you have so many factors contributing to the issue you're looking at? So that's a great question. Um, One of the um, real values of working with food as our primary tool in this initiative, but also one of the challenges that goes along with it is that food is a part of every person's life every day. You know, it's embedded in every part of our culture, every part of our community. So it's, it's challenging for one funder to make such an impact on a community's food environment that, that it'll be um, defined or directed solely by that funder's influence, right? I mean, we, you know, we, we're coming into a food system in these neighborhoods that's been built over the course of decades. And in many of these low-income neighborhoods, it's, it's not a healthy food environment. So uh, we recognize that our influence um, will even with the lasting impact that we create, there are many, many, many other forces at work here that we may not be able to exert the greatest influence over. So our role is really to find many of those intervention points in a neighborhood, whether it's through schools, through public housing developments, through grocery stores and corner stores, through hospitals and community health care centers, all these different institutions and elements of a community that touch individuals' lives and try to, you know, make efforts through all those institutions that will add up to a positive influence to give individual families more choices. When they go out into the world and look at the food options that are available to them, the affordable food options that are available to them, will they be able to see more through all of these institutions that touch their lives? So I think one of the interesting things here, Rick, is that, you know, as a foundation, you all made several grants as part of this program. So it went to different organizations. And I think that's what Amy's sort of getting at is like when you're evaluating the entire grant making strategy that, you know, there are many different facets there. Can you, Rick, give us an example of one of the grantees and sort of how the proceeds were used for the program? Sure, sure. So one example um uh, I'll give you is, um, let me think about this. Uh, Green City Force um, is a wonderful, it's actually an AmeriCorps program based in New York City public housing, what's called NYCHA, New York City Housing Authority. And it's um, a, an urban farm development program where residents of NYCHA, typically between ages of 18 and 24, build farms and then engage uh, with fellow residents um, in uh, harvest festivals, nutrition training programs, cooking classes, and it becomes a job opportunity because part of the training for the 18 to 24-year-olds is really around developing transferable skills. Some of them go into urban agriculture. Others start businesses like a catering business. Others start working in other environmental areas like working with the utility on energy conservation strategies really within a 
environmental rubric. Um, so in that case, um, there was one of these farms, and we worked with Green City Forest to scale it to six farms. So now it's across the city. It's now uh, employed about oh, 120 uh, residents of public housing, about um, 80% graduate, and of those, about 80% go on to jobs or uh, or back to school. And this is really a radical accomplishment in terms of, again, not just eating healthy food, but creating opportunity. And, and you know, with poverty as the main underlying factor here uh, for issues around food access and affordability, that's... That growth, that multiplication is really where we see a lot of that value. And I think you you sort of noted there in your response a few of the questions I would have asked Rick as a follow-up, which were, what were those metrics that you looked at to determine success? But it was very clear what impressed you as you summarized the organization that got this award funding those specific, you know, uh, measurable identifiers. The impact was, you know, broad and multifaceted, but you had some specific numbers there that you were calling out and would be the things to watch for that program. And and Rick, okay, so one of the things that I find interesting, given our last guest, um, you know, we were speaking with Water.org, and they really talked about, you know, philanthropy, you know, playing a role, governments playing a role. But yet, you know, in order to achieve sustainable social impact, you know, we think that the private sector needs to get involved. We need to think about, you know, the use of investment dollars and others. So, you know, from the as the executive director of a foundation, how do you view the role of your organization in driving social impact? I really see us as part of that ecosystem. I, I think it would be foolish to say the foundation is going to solve these problems. A lot of these are public policy issues. They're economic issues. Um, and so uh, to give you another example, um, one of the projects we worked with is with LISC, what's called the Lo- Local Initiative Support Corporation. They're in about... 45 cities and 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 rural communities as well across the city they uh list does job development economic development um we were just uh, talking about them yesterday in a meeting ah there you go and so what they were looking at is many of the communities that they're working with health disparities issues of diabetes life expectancy and unemployment are all interlinked. Um, they work with a mixed financing model with money from federal, state, and city government. Uh, they work with nonprofits across the range, and they work with foundations. So that mixed finding, financing model, uh, I think, is absolutely core. And in business development, you're creating those opportunities. I mean, I'll, I'll go back also to the Green Card Initiative. Um, each of those uh, green Carts is an individual business. These are essentially social entrepreneurs. I'll, I'll, I'll say accidental social entrepreneurs, because they'll be vending whatever is available. Uh, here, they're vending fresh fruits and vegetables, and it's an economic opportunity. There are multiple generations now that own these carts. There are about 320 active in New York City neighborhoods now as a result of the Green Card Initiative. I, I think that's really great strategy. And, I, and I'm curious to hear, too, about, you know, Amy, as you think about your work and your clients, how are they thinking about these different issues? And are they thinking about a f- different set of tools to be able to, to achieve their social impact goals? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think how Rick characterized the Illumination Fund as existing within an ecosystem, I think increasingly the private funders that we work with would share that uh, viewpoint of how they fit into a, a larger community. You know, philanthropy, realize, uh, I think philanthropists realize that as a portion of the economy and even as a, a portion of charitable dollars where we make up a relatively small part, um, individual donors are a very important part of the landscape. Public agencies have been critical partners in the Healthy Food and Community Change Initiative and in, in many initiatives that that are looking for a social impact. And, of course, partnership with business. Um, a number of the grantees through this initiative, worked with local and small business owners, including supermarkets and other other uh, elements of, of neighborhood-based food systems, working with farmers, working with um, uh, larger food production companies that are based here in New York, working with the Hunts Point Food Distribution Center in the Bronx that I believe is the largest kind of food distribution center in the country. These are very important players as you look at a food ecosystem and um, I think a lot of the donors that we work with here at RPA would would also recognize that um, you have to play in the sandbox if you want to try to get big impacts. Yeah, there's certainly no shortage of actors in this space, you know, in the broad space surrounding food. Rick, for our listeners who are interested in supporting this topic, they're passionate about making sure healthy food is something that everyone has access to or they recognize the lack of healthy food or the negative impacts of that lack of healthy food in their communities, how would you suggest they determine where to get involved with so many points of entry into the, you know, food food issue area? Sure. Well, what I would suggest, and again, one of the learnings here is that Funding food is not just for food funders, uh, funders who care about health care, funders who care about affordable housing and community development, um, intergenerational programs, youth development, education, so uh, and social entrepreneurship, which is, in fact, very core, I know, to your your show and the guests that, that you bring on board. Um, and so I would say don't start necessarily with food. Look, you know, if, if, if you don't care or if you, you have no experience with food, um, think about what you care about. And then is there a nexus with food or with health disparities? And then look at organizations in your community that are doing work in that area. And I'll, I'll just give you again a couple of examples. Uh, we worked with three major hospital systems in New York City around sort of a food prescription model. Um, I love in, this concept. Yeah. Well, in your city, for example, last year, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia started a food pharmacy, pharmacy program um, and in-hospital food pantry that's based upon this kind of model. Um, you know, San Francisco, the hospital system started a prescription program and food pantry. So these are models that we're seeing grow. Um, and I would say if, if, if any prospective donors or people who are interested, that yes, they can go out to food pantries and food organizations and see what they're doing, but they can also go to organizations that they might know and say, is this an issue that you see is relevant to what you're doing? Are you doing something of this nature? Thanks, you know, Rick. Yeah, it sounds like follow your passion and it will lead, it will have an intersection with food. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, I think that we are going to have to wrap up there. We are rapidly coming to the close of our segment. Um, but thank you both so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Amy Holmes, director at Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, and Rick Luffglass, executive director of the Lori M. Tisch Illumination Fund. Thanks so much for joining us, Rick. Thank you. I really want to appreciate I Thank you for your time and, and the, the uh, way that you approach the program with, around intersections of those sectors. Thanks. And thank you, Amy, for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Nick. You bet. So, Sandy... Um, it's interesting because actually Rick and Gary are, you know, our first guests, uh, their advice was actually pretty similar. Don't necessarily recreate the wheel. Mm-hmm. And it is music to our ears. Uh, you know, we fill, you know, these segments with guests. We've heard so many versions of a similar business model or um, so many different folks trying to tackle a particular issue area over the years. Lots of room for, you know, doubling down. And collaboration. Well, exactly. So it's sort of like if you are passionate about an area, which so many of our listeners are, so many of our students are, you know, it doesn't have to doesn't mean that you have to be the founder of a new organization. You can get involved with an existing one. You could also, you know, there, like we talked a little bit about like sort of mergers and acquisitions yeah. in the nonprofit space are not as well talked about as they might need to be. Yeah, or these adjacent adjacent spaces. So to Rick's point, if you care about education, but you heard this segment and thought, oh, you know, how are we thinking about food? You can talk to the schools in your community about, you know, what they're doing. And could you volunteer in the community garden the school has or things like this? So um what it does is remove excuses because these are all great ways to get involved. But I think it's a you know, really important message to our listeners that you don't need to be the founder. It does not need to start with a new nonprofit or a new social enterprise. There's a lot going on and there are a lot of ways to support it, whether that is volunteering your time, being a part of one of these businesses or thinking about your investments and really how you can, you know, you could invest in a municipal bond with a, you know, thematic impact lens. Exactly. Well, Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow us on our show Twitter, at Wharton Social, and our channel Twitter, at BizRadio132. Once again, special thank you to our guests. I'd also like to thank our program director, Patty Hall, as well as our sound engineer, Jeff Simmons, and producer, Matt Datz. I'm Nick Ashburn with Sandy Hunt. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, SiriusXM132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.